Good morning. If I haven't met you yet, my name's Wilson. I'm the pastoral resident uh, here at Incarnation. It's great to be with you. We're continuing on in our sermon series, looking at the Psalms and learning to pray like Jesus. And this morning, if you've got a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to turn to Psalm 104, what we're looking at today. Uh, The psalm we read earlier was long, and it was just like a piece of Psalm 104. So I really encourage you, if you do have a Bible, to turn there. We're going to be jumping all over this psalm today. It's this leisurely and deep meditation on God's creation. We're going to be looking at what it looks like to pray using the words of, uh, of the stuff of this world, the creation today. In a lot of ways, I am totally going to be preaching to the choir because we are those privileged, chosen people that get to live in the Shenandoah Valley. Here, here, right on. And it's uh, it's the best time of year in the Shenandoah Valley. Some of you would argue and say that spring is the best time, uh, but the only reason for that is because you're dreading winter coming and just be in the moment. Just put your sweater on and enjoy the fall leaves. It's the best. It's the best time. Um, we were on this retreat last week with a bunch of pastors in our area, and uh, we were right around the Mount Jackson area up in the mountains, sitting in like the coziest place you could imagine, next to a fireplace, windows all around. Uh, it was like peak week in the fall. All the fall colors were, were there, and what we were doing, we were spending the whole day sharing prayer requests and, and life updates, and it was my turn to share. And so I was uh, bearing my soul, and then one of the pastors interrupted me in the middle of this, and that person may be here today, um, (laughs) right in the middle of me just like gushing it all forth and says, everybody, look at the leaves. And this, (laughs) this gust of wind had come through and had taken the leaves off the tree, and I like, I wasn't even mad. The, uh... All of these leaves had fallen off the tree at one point and had been caught up in this gust and they were like shooting upward in this arc right in front of the windows and the fire was crackling and the partly cloudy day was rolling by and it was this sublime moment and all was well in the world. That's what we're all experiencing right now, right? It's, it's glory. And God has given us words to say back to him, about this creation. Now, what did the Psalms of creation actually do when we pray them? Why are they here? Is it, is it just to appreciate so we can appreciate nature? Well, yeah, sure, like any good poetry can open up our eyes to a sense of wonder at creation again. And the Psalms are good poetry, so they do that. They help us see the wonder of the world again. But they do more than that. When we pray Psalm 104 and psalms like it, they slowly but surely give us the gift of restored vision. Psalm 104, whoever the psalmist is that wrote this one, is a person who sees the created world as it was meant to be seen, which is, which is much more than just appreciating nature. It's seeing truly. It's seeing spiritually. It's seeing rightly, seeing the world as it really is, which is a place that is charged with God's grandeur, as Gerard Manley Hopkins famously said. When we pray Psalm 104, 
when we use it to leisurely meditate on the created works of God and all their power and all their dizzying array, when we pray this way, it restores our ability to see. And so I want to look at two things today. First, I want to just look at why we need restored sight. Why do we need our sight restored? And then second, using Psalm 104, I want to get into the experience of seeing the creation with restored sight, of seeing it truly. So first, why do we need restored sight? And then second, getting into the experience of of what we see when we have restored vision. Okay, so first, why do we need our sight restored? Okay, in every society, in every day and age, has its own ways of not seeing right. So in the ancient world, uh, when Israel is writing its scriptures, its neighbors often considered creation as an end in and of itself, a thing to be worshipped, right? So the sun and the moon, things to be worshipped. Or else creation was this like battlefield of the gods, right? Duking it out. Or some sort of combination of those things. And the biblical writers all the time are cutting against this way of seeing things. And Psalm 104 is an example of this. So in Psalm 104, the sun and the moon are powerful, but only because God set them up. They know their place. So look at verse 19. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows its time for setting. So they're in their place. It's God who made them. They're not to be worshiped. There's a God behind those things. Or for another example, the sea. The sea in the ancient world is the symbol for for fear and chaos, right? But in the biblical vision, we see verse 6, talking probably about the beginning of creation. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, God, they fled. Sure, water's powerful, but it's not acting on its own. And then one last example, probably my favorite one, is in verse 26, talking about the Leviathan, this chaos monster of the sea in the ancient world. Verse 26, there go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. Or maybe a better translation, the Leviathan, which you formed to play with. So this sea monster, it's just another one of God's play things, right? How about today? That's how the ancient world would often see. Uh, Today, nature worship is becoming more popular, but for many, for many, it's God's distance that characterizes the way that we see creation. Maybe it's this idea that God is separated from the world that we know by this great and unbridgeable gulf. So maybe there's a God who created, but there's no way to really know him, right? That view has profound implications for the ways that we see the physical world. Or maybe it's this Platonic idea that the physical world is just the external stuff. It's the shabby exterior for what really matters, which is spiritual things, internal things, right? The Western church has fallen into this trap many times before. It's easy for us to imagine that God is far distant from the world, maybe because we are distant from it. It's, it is easier than ever before in the history of humankind to live distant from the world, to have our lives completely divorced from the land. So we get our food already packaged at the grocery store. We work in the office, not in the land. 
And so we can afford to admire creation the way that we admire stuff at a museum. It's beautiful. Oh, it's great. But it's not the stuff of my daily life. In other words, it is hard to see creation truly today, just like in every other age. The modern imagination is a flat one. It's unenchanted because we see ourselves and God distanced from the physical world. At the end of the day, creation is nature. It's just there. It's lifeless matter. In failing to see, we miss out on the wonder, the joy, the interconnectedness, the sacredness of creation. And this failure of sight, seeing creation as lifeless matter disconnected from God, this is important. This failure of sight leaves us in spiritual poverty. And spiritual poverty creates the conditions for all sorts of vices and misery. Okay, I'm about to make a major jump here, but just see if what I'm saying makes sense. The reason we sin, the reason for envy and for greed and lust and fits of anger and lying and stealing, the reason we sin is because we are not satisfied. And we aren't satisfied because we don't see. We don't recognize the riches of God that are poured out constantly and abundantly into this world. Let me say that again. We sin because we are not satisfied. And so we're thirsty and we're hungry and we look in all the wrong places to satisfy us. And we aren't satisfied in the first place because we don't see God's grace poured out abundantly in his created world. Thomas Traherne uh, is a 17th century theologian and mystic um, that people like C.S. Lewis really like to read. Uh, said this, said, some people can be rejoicing in the temple of heaven while, while others are toiling and lamenting in hell. For the world, this world, the present world, is both a paradise and a prison to different persons. The gift of restored vision can determine whether you live in the world as someone who is abundantly rich or miserably poor. It's why someone can have all the riches in the world and yet enjoy none of it. Ecclesiastes 6, 1 through 2 says this, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. In other words, the created world can be a source of delight and contentment for the one who sees. But the one who fails to see is failing to see the joy, wonder, and wisdom of God throbbing in everything. This is Traherne again. You never see the world aright till you see how a grain of sand exhibits the wisdom and power of God. It doesn't take much to live in awe and in wonder and to enjoy things. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus, of all the miracles that he did, one of the miracles that's highlighted in every gospel and sometimes occurs multiple times per gospel is him healing someone who's born blind. 
That was our gospel reading today. And the reason for that is that it is a fundamental picture of discipleship. So our gospel reading is one of those scenes, like the disciples are on this journey of understanding Jesus more, right in the middle of gospel, the gospel of Mark. They're understanding what it, his kingdom really means and, and who he really is. And in the middle of that, Jesus performs this miracle on a man and restores his sight in a strange way, using the stuff of the earth, mud and spit and rubbing it on his eyes. And at first he sees men like trees walking, but then he sees fully, Right? It's this picture of discipleship. It's this picture of what Jesus does. Jesus Christ restores the sight to the blind, and he still does it today. So, if you're here today, and for whatever reason, you've got uh, what the New Testament would call an evil eye, an eye that just cannot see the riches of wonder and joy dripping from God's world. Uh, uh, not living in, in the grace and joy and the peace of Jesus, and an eye that is leading you into all sorts of destructive stuff, greed and envy and lust, if that's where you're at today, Jesus will heal you. Jesus heals the eyes of the blind. When we can't see rightly, it leaves us in spiritual poverty, and it's out of spiritual poverty that we sin in our restless desire to be satisfied. And yet, the good news is that spiritual poverty is the exact condition for meeting Jesus. Isn't that the wisdom of God? The very thing that has us in our misery, he is made to be the very thing that we need to meet him and to receive his salvation. If only we'd come to him. Jesus will open up your eyes in wonder. And the only thing you have, you need to have, is spiritual poverty, is need. All you need to be healed is blindness. It's amazing. So, all we've seen so far is why. Why do we need restored sight? And so, I want to turn now, trusting in Jesus who heals our eyes. I want to turn to Psalm 104 and soak for just a few minutes in the experience of looking at God's creation with sight that's restored. Okay? And we can see a lot of wonderful things with healed eyes. And I'm just going to highlight two, just a couple things. All right? All right. The first thing we begin to see when we have our eyes restored is we see creation charged with God's grandeur. Okay? Look what's held out for us here. Um, just a couple of things, all right, in Psalm 104. For one, we see abundance in creation and not scarcity. So God provides what we need. Look at verse 14. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth. Not only that, verse 15, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine. God continually invites us into the grace of creation, into an economy of abundance where there's always enough. Seeing right frees us from the scarcity mindset. Okay, what else? We see God's kindness. Verse 16, the trees of the Lord. I love that, God's trees. The trees of the Lord are, wondered, are watered abundantly, and then they provide hospitality for the birds. God's kindness is everywhere. All right, we see God's wisdom. 
after 23 verses in this psalm of this like effusive, joyful flow of observations and words about nature, the psalmist just blurts out, verse 24, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom, you have made them all. When somebody makes something with wisdom in the Bible, it always involves two things, technical skill and artistry. So God, when he's making things, is both an architect and he's an artisan. Um, I come from a family of architects. My dad's an architect. My sister is an architect and her husband, my brother-in-law. So us lay people in the family have learned to pay attention to buildings over the years. Um, When I was growing up, there was this new development in our fairly small town of this uh, kind of strip mall sort of thing. And it was like a typical strip mall, but I think uglier than the normal one. It had this it had this facade in the front that you know, looked like the outline of an interesting building, but then if you looked at the side of it, the facade was just like this cardboard cutout almost with sticks you know, holding it up like that. And it was painted in these like clashing colors and it drew the ire of my dad. I mean, every time we drove by it, he called it Clown Town and it was just like, it was offensive. It was like this big offensive message had been put up in the middle of town. And he was right. It is offensive. Because it wasn't built with wisdom. It started falling apart like, a, like 12 months after it got built. It was built with neither technical skill nor artistry. God never does that in his creation. He never builds things that way. If we can just see it, we will find the world to be a place that's filled with God's abundance and his kindness and his wisdom and, and that it's shot through with exuberant joy. It's not a waste of time to observe a stork making her home in a fir tree or to watch as a donkey quenches his thirst at a river or to notice a sunset, how it's, how it's painted differently every day or to note the rhythms of the earth of of sustenance and abundance. Seeing these things leads us to love and leads us to joy. I know the story of somebody who became a Christian. Uh, The penny finally dropped for them after they read a certain verse. Not John 3.16, God so loved the world, gave his only son, uh, but the rock badger verse. Psalm Psalm 104.18, the high mountains are for the wild goats, The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. She loved the environment and cared for it and loved animals. And she'd always pictured God about only caring about the spiritual stuff and being in the spiritual realm. But then she met the God who cares for rock badgers and she was toast. (laughs) It's awesome. Restored vision and salvation go hand in hand. So that's one thing we see clearly with restored vision. We just see creation like that, charged with God's grandeur, his abundance, his kindness, his wisdom, his joy, and the list goes on and on and on. And another thing we see with restored vision, and we'll end here, another thing we see is we see more truly our place within creation. So at the very end, I'm going to give you seven psalms like we've been doing to read. And so this week, the first one you'll read, the one you'll read tomorrow is Psalm 8. Okay, And when you'll read it, you'll see a slightly different angle on human beings than Psalm 104 gives us. So Psalm 8, 3 through 4 4 is this famous passage 
When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Psalm 108 wonders at the fact that within the enormity of God's creation, uh, God's given human beings dominion, right? The special and privileged place. Put all things under our feet. It it echoes this vision of Genesis, of human beings being these royal priests in in God's uh, creation, this very dignified position. But Psalm 104 gives us a different angle. Not a contradictory angle, but a different one. In this psalm, Humankind is just one creature among the many, swarming around in the world. So human beings don't even show up until verse 14 of Psalm 104. And then by verse 23, humankind is just folded into the natural rhythms of morning and evening. So look at verse 23. When the sun rises, the young lions steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. Seeing this rightly seeing our humble place within creation. This is desperately important today. It heals the way that we think about the world. We tend to see creation in fragments as the bit that's useful to us as a scientist or as a a skier or whatever. As one commentator put it, we imagine ourselves autonomous, distinct from the world and different from its creatures disposing of the world and the creatures, not accountable to any transcendent person. We're learning slowly that we damage ourselves and live in alienation from that to which we belong and threaten the future of life. So abuse and careless use of God's creation, which is a terrible problem in the modern world, comes from a failure to see. It comes from seeing the world in a simply utilitarian or pragmatic way. And we can break out of that habit of seeing, which is so deeply ingrained, by learning to talk to God about his world. The the vision of Psalm 104 is different than environmental consciousness, which, by the way, is way better than nothing, okay? But being environmentally conscious tends to center on maintaining our standard of life and being able to pass it along to our kids. So it can be motivated primarily by selfishness and fear. But the Psalms give us a language, not of selfishness and fear, but of praise. It gives us a way to talk to God about this world, not as nature that we stand above that can be just used, but as creation and our place in it. So these psalms help us to find our place, help us to find our stories within the larger narrative of creation, our small but very significant stories of bread and wine and work and rest and death and life and through it all of praise. Yeah, human, we've been given a privileged place, absolutely. We're called to steward, but always being mindful of our place within the fabric always mindful of the fact that, that we are also creatures who, as the psalm says, are filled with good things when God opens his hand, but who are dismayed when he turns his face. And so taking our place in this teeming and beautiful world, we can be dependent on God in gratitude, and we can sing his praise 
with eyes wide open. And so I want to end by giving you the seven psalms. Um, go ahead and rifle around in your, uh, in your bag for your pen. Seven psalms to sing his praise with eyes wide open this week. Here they are. Psalm 8, 19, 29, 65, 95, uh, which in the tradition of the church you pray every morning. 95, 104, 147. Say that one more time. Psalm 8, 19, 29, 65, 95, 104, 147. Find your quiet place. Find your set time every day. Pray with one of these psalms in the presence of Jesus who restores your sight and give praise to God with your eyes wide open and let him restore you to see again to the reality of his grace. Let's pray.